we, uh, as we look and laugh about that, one of the things we just realize and recognize that we are a flawed people, and the very Bible we read has these amazing stories in them. And you wonder, uh, if you were to write a biography or a, a story as, as you being the central figure, would you allow for all of the underbelly and all the inside dirt to be written? And God did. He inspired writers to write of the flaws and the sin and the disobedience. And he writes a very honest book. I'm so glad he did because I recognize as uh, we all have opportunities to lead and live in this life that we're really not far different than back then. And as we laugh at David and Moses and Paul and Saul and Solomon and all the different ones, we recognize, well, we're sinful. We're sinful, and we, we wanted to address what does it mean to be an imperfect Christian today, and what does it look like, and we want to continue in our reading, and today's reading is day 15, if you've been reading the Circle Maker Devotion, and uh, we have those post-it notes at the Bible uh, carts, and they're at the Visitor Center. I just recommend, gosh, if you want to pick up one of those and just be circling. I don't know about you, but I've been praying. How many of you have been praying more than you ever have in your life just during this journey of this circle maker journey. Yeah, I'd encourage you to continue to read and to be on your knees and praying. Because really, if we were to talk honest about what does it mean to be a Christ follower today, and in, as we are imperfect, one of the first signs that you find of an authentic relationship with Christ is it's someone who's praying. It's, it's someone who is beginning to live that life of prayer. When we're not in prayer, when we're not connected to the Father this way, we really then live in what's called a transactional engagement with religion. And we're trying to figure out how many times we need to plug into the Sunday service. What are we giving? We're, we're kind of managing the outer exterior of our religious life. We try to live a moral life. And I want to talk about prayer this morning in, in a little bit deeper way, but we're going to take four weeks and kind of ride us through these 40 days of prayer. And not to assume that we stop praying after 40 days, but we want to address some of the areas of prayer that might be misunderstood. You see, prayer is, again, something that's just a part of our faith. And as you read, even the new, to believer, the new believers, not nude believers, um, <laughs> that would come back to me. I'm sure my staff will tell you that this week. Uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Prayer is a, is a necessary part of what it means to have relationship. It's no different than being in your profession and you have a specific discipline that's necessary. If you're an athlete, you would be required to have the discipline of workout and practice that would increase your ability and your performance, whatever uh, sport you'd be in. If you're a lawyer, you would need to have a discipline of study and research of the current laws and defense and uncovering facts. And this is just a part of how you would live your life. Disciplines are necessary. Why is it when we look at the faith, immediately Christians just think that they can sit in chairs and go through religious kind of life and not have a discipline? And there are disciplines of being in the Word and disciplines of gathering together as Christians, but one of those, and first and foremost, really, is prayer. 
In fact, you would read that like the first necessary life-giving breath of every newborn baby, we know that as a baby is delivered, as our four daughters are delivered, and being a young father back then, it was like, oh, come on, breathe. And, and, and if, for nurses and doctors, that's kind of like, oh, this is going to happen, don't worry. But, you know, as a dad, I remember that, that when Lauren was born 21 years ago, it was like, come on, c- come on. Because what does breath signify? It signifies, oh, yes, life has begun. And we know life began, but they breathe that first breath of air. It means now a new relationship in, outside of the womb and into the world. So is prayer the breath of a newborn soul. And there could be no Christian life without it. In other words, if you're not praying, I'm not sure you have relationship with God. I don't mean that to be uh, indicting you or anything this morning, almost more just exposing it for what it is, that if you don't find yourself talking to the Creator who birthed you spiritually, who created you physically, who gave you life, I wonder if you have a relationship at all. Maybe you just have a transaction for some sort of religious practice. And this morning I want to dive a little bit deeper into this idea of confession. And uh, as I was doing some of these graphics, I just felt this is like me in the front row before I come up. And it's not because I don't like what's going on on stage, just so you know. It's not like I'm getting headaches for all the things that are happening. I mean, honestly, you know what's going on with me? I'm confessing. I find myself more and more, and in my prayer journal, uh, the more I find myself giving reverence and glory and honor to God, I am more exposed. And I find myself underneath that light, that great light of the Father going, oh Lord, I feel like one of those characters in those chairs. Why are you using me? Why, why do I get to come up and share about my journey? What is it that you're asking me to do? And there is a great amount of confession And I know that some of you have just said to me, oh, Troy, we love it when you confess your sin. So that's a little bit demented. Um, But I get it. Because often in church culture, the person that walks up on this stage, the people that walk up, there's this impression that we have it figured out. And friends, I am no different than you. I have a gift that God's called me to use, as you do. But I could be sitting right along with David, right along with Paul or Saul or Peter. And I find myself in moments of great confession of, Lord, my thought life, the thing I said this week, the act that I did or didn't do this week, and I find myself confessing. Do you? I want to talk more about confession because when we talk about this, a lot of your church background, background and drama comes into the into the picture. Some of you have grown up in uh, a very higher church model, Catholic or Lutheran, and you might have thought, okay, I need to go to confession, and even terms like my first confession. And yet, what you need to recognize this morning, I want to shed some light, this is a very big part of prayer, this act of confessing. And so let's talk a little bit about what does it mean to confess. The word confess um, is used all throughout the Bible. It basically means to, to throw or to, to cast. 
uh, to shoot, to release. Something is, has left. Another way, it means to, to give thanks. It means to, to give away, to, to, to praise. And it's used in two different contexts, this idea of confessing. And you'll see it all throughout your Bible, whether in the Hebrew or the Greek. And it, it means, in one way, to give thanks and praise to God. It's to confess my love for Him. Or to confess my submission and surrender to Him. It's like in Romans 10, 9, and 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. In other words, confession doesn't just mean sin. It also means praise and glory. And so in, in a way, as Sylvia led us this morning, we are confessing our allegiance as we sing these songs. I am set free. I am set free. We're, we're proclaiming, we're confessing. Another way, though, it used to, to describe a confession and naming my sin. The Hebrew writer in, in Hebrews 12 says, therefore, Paul, uh, the writer says, not Paul, but he says, cast off everything as, that is slowing you down. To confess the things in your life that are slowing you down is so vital to the Christian walk, to the relationship that we have with God. And this is, this is much of what the Scriptures are speaking about, of a confession of surrender and allegiance, but also a confession of how much I fall short. I mean, think about this morning, if we were, uh, we've talked about this before, if we were to have the technology to say, I, I just invite somebody up, come on up and sit down in the chair, and we're going to plug you in, and we're just going to watch the thought life you had this week. We're going to watch your life in HD, by the way, in HD, and we're, just, we're going to hear the audio and just see what your life was like this week. How many of us would be really excited about stepping on stage? Yeah, a few of you. I think the interesting part in church culture that we have, uh, I think, grown and moved away from that is very damaging today is we've created a culture that's really surrounded more about right and wrong and pointing out who's right and wrong. And what we do is we, we kind of project this culture that we have it all together. And when we do that, we build these great walls and barriers that people feel a judging sense of who we are. Confession rips down the walls. Confession equalizes the room. And so we no longer look at a King David, who God says he, he is one after God's own heart. God loved him dearly. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And all of a sudden, God is still saying, I still love him. When we begin to confess, we find our rest in not that we get it right or wrong, but that God has made our wrongs right in his eyes through Jesus. Confession of sin demonstrates our acknowledgement that we have sinned and that we are turning away from it. In other words, this morning, the idea of confession um, is not the right or wrong list. It's not like I want to be right and so we manage this, I better say all the things so that God is happy with me and then I get some sort of transaction. Because if I confess this, whoo, good, because we were going to try to get away with it next weekend and I want to make everything working out. You know, or I'm going to ask this person out on a date and if I, I better confess everything up so it works out. 
I'm going to confess everything so that I get the right job or the, the, the right amount of money comes in this week. And so we start to treat God as if he's up there, arms crossed, waiting. You better say it. I know what you did. And God is not operating this way. And this is not a proper context of how God wants us to understand our faith and what we're actually confessing. I, I want to go back to the beginning because it speaks to really what we, what we need to be talking about when we say confession. In Genesis chapter 1, God makes this, the writer says, uh, the writer really, Moses, that's writing about us being created. It says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that we may rule over the fish and the sea, the birds of the sky, uh, livestock, wild animals, and so on. And it says, we created, God created mankind in his own image. Male and female, he created them. In other words, would we assume and say that a creator of something knows what's best about what he created it for? Do you understand what I'm saying? Have you ever been to a garage sale and seen, like, what is this? Well, in order to answer that question, wouldn't we have to go back to actually who made or created what that thing is? And part of us understanding that is a meditation in Scripture and in truth and then a surrender to the Spirit, but we need to understand that God had a design. And if this part of the stage represents our design, which started in the garden, God had a purpose for us. And anytime we step outside of our design, outside of the garden, if you will, because we know that because of sin, we have a flawed sense of how we think. We have a flawed sense of emotion and feelings. We have a flawed sense of understanding who God is. I mean, physically, we find ourselves uh, impacted by sin. Sin is operating outside of how God has designed us to live. And so the story picks up in Genesis 2. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Bottom line is that when God created us, there was no sense of guilt and shame. When we operate outside of God's design for us, where when we leave the garden metaphorically, we find ourselves guilty and ashamed. I mean, how many times have you found yourself with a secret sin or a sin, and you know, and you feel more guilt? And more shame. And the cycle of sin is so uh, convicting and, and it pulls us deeper because you want to forget that you're in sin and you're guilty and you're angry and ashamed. And so then you, you take a step further away and a further away, and you, it may become addictions. Being part of the whole idea of sexual sin for men has a lot to do. Part of the reason they're angry at women. Is, is because of their own sin and their own, they recognize that and they want to control that situation and so they find themselves in a cycle of sexual sin, whether it's pornography, whether it's adultery or fornication and sexual sin, as Paul says, is gripping. And, and God's laws says, listen, I designed you. Sex is a great thing, but you've got you to handle that how I've created you. You need to operate this way. When you take a step outside of your sexual identity, and your design, you throw off everything. And sin has this lure, doesn't it? Because for a moment, a fleeting moment, it feels great. Whether, no matter if it's an addiction, whether it's sexual sin, whether it's greed, whether it's pride, for a moment it does. But as the Hebrew writer says, it begins to harden the heart. 
And God says, that is so small. It's almost like you're eating from this trash bin and thinking it's great. When God says, I have a banquet here for you. You think on this side it's good. I'm going to tell you it's amazing if you can enter into this joy. And so they feel no shame. They feel the blessing of being under God's design. And then in Genesis 3 it says, after they eat of the apple, they disobey God. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They can't handle that. We can't handle that, can we? The choice. The choice is too much. And we're lured so quickly away. And it says that they realize they were both naked. All of a sudden, they're exposed. They've stepped away. And so they put fig leaves and, and coverings for themselves. And when the man and wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking through the garden, in the cool of the day, they hid from the Lord in the trees of the garden. And the reason I'm reading this is because they hide. This is the very reason why God begins to institute this discipline of confessing. Because what's the first thing we do when we sin? We hide. We dress up for church. We dress up for work. And we hide our flaws. Because we're taught, especially as good Americans, we can do it. Pull up your bootstraps and just make it work. And, excuse me, be successful. Show the world that you can do this. And the gospel is counter to that. It is to, it's saying proclaim that you can't. Proclaim that you're flawed. Proclaim, claim that you stepped outside of God's design for you. Now we've got to understand a little bit about sin. Sin, defined in the Hebrew and Greek, really means to miss. Uh, to have a misstep, like to slip with your foot. You've, you, in fact, the, the proverb writer and the Psalms writer says, keep me on the path, Lord, as if not to slip and fall off the edge. In other words, it's also used to, in an archer's sense, that you've missed the target. In other words, sin is missing the path and the design that God had for you. Missing the complete design for how He's wired you and how He's created you to be. When we start to think about this, then sin is less a list of what's listed in the Bible of what you should and shouldn't be doing. Sin becomes more of a wrong being. You're operating outside of how you were designed. Not a right and wrong list. Sin is not wrongdoing, it's wrong being. It's deliberate and emphatic independence of God. In other words... It's not, oh Lord, forgive me today for this list, this list, the dot, 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 because the Bible doesn't list all of it. There's, there's probably so much sin and evil because really it's defined as you've moved outside of the being that God created you to be. No one in here is perfect. Every one of us is impacted by sin in this world, evil in this world. Our hearts aren't initially good, our minds aren't good, our flesh, our bodies aren't good. And what happens is, if we start to believe this idea that we can get it right and not be wrong, then we become very indicting on everyone else. And it's a comparison game then, isn't it? Well, at least I didn't murder like David or like my neighbor. At least I'm not like the fellows down in 172 in the prison who have done horrible crimes. And so we start to rate sin. And this is not how God sees sin. He sees all of it. Even what we call the respectable sins of Christians. 
like the little gossip or slander that we'll throw out, or the greed, or the self-righteousness. All those things are missteps, are slips, are wrong beings for how God designed us. So this right or wrong list is what I try to kind of speak against because this kind of thinking or theology about God runs amok and it becomes, we become a very judgmental culture and a fake and a pharisaical culture. That means we give the impression that we're really good when we are as dark as everybody else. In Disneyland, the employees are trained, they can never point. Pointing is like, uh, it's, it's, it's too direct, it's, uh, it's kind of judgmental and so Nobody likes to be pointed at. So they teach them they can do three fingers, I think the way that my friends that have worked there said, or an open palm, and it's always they're doing this. Like We used to ask, like quiz people, hey, could you tell me exactly where the merry-go-round is? And we, we wanted them to do this, but they wouldn't. They'd go, over here. <laughs> I think the church today has really missed this idea of confession because when we don't begin to be honest about who we are, we start to point at other things. And it's easy for us to watch the news. It's easy to see people that struggle with sin, whether it's sexual identity, addictions, horrible things that have been done to you or your family, and judge people. You see, confession is a proclamation of my surrender to God, but also confessing and admitting my missteps. In other words, the right or wrong culture, this right or wrong thinking moves us away from holiness to being very, 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 very good people. And the problem with this kind of thinking is really it's more, it, it puts us this idea of we're just going to have this morality theology of let's just get it right, and it moves us away from what holiness is. And the difference is this, morality of living this way about getting it right is basically about external behavior management. Let's clean up the outside, people. Let's not listen to this music. Let's not read these books. Let's not do this. Let's not go there. Let's not do this. And when does the list end? Because truth be told, every book written, every song played, Christian or not, every movie produced, Christian or not, is all flawed with sin. And the only thing that's sinless is Christ himself. His word is the only thing. But Jesus didn't say, leave the world and put yourself in an incubator. He said, live in the world and be honest about who you are and authentic with you who you are. And external morality management does nothing but judge other people. In other words, holiness is an internal surrender. It means we've turned We move away from the sin. And I love this because what ends up happening is if this is the farther extreme of of sin, every kind of heinous, dark sin you could think of. And I think of the thief on the cross who in moments is going to pass away. We don't know all the things of his life. But think if we could plug in his life and see the people he harmed and hurt, all the good people, all the the disabled people that he took advantage of. And in a moment, all he does is what? He confesses. That's holiness. Some might think, no, no, he's got to take the long walk of morality 
adjustments and he's got to fix all these things and he's got to make them right and he's got to do all this before he can get into holiness. No, he is made righteous and holy in that moment. That means, Linda right? any of the men on 172 in that prison that she sees weekly, rapists, murderers, in one moment are made holy. Not because of them cleaning up their lives, but because they what? They confess their love and surrender to Jesus Christ and that they're sinful. They confess their, their misstep. See how beautiful that is? It doesn't matter who that person is then. 1 John says this, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus purifies us all from sin. Think about this this morning. When we confess our surrender to him, the light is on us. And when we do that together, it's beautiful because we're all confessing what? Our surrender to the Father, our, our surrender to His Lordship, but also we're confessing that we're all flawed and broken. Tell me, is that welcoming to a world that's lost? Is that in, bring just such an invitation of saying, come? The problem is I think often we pretend we're in the light, but we live in the dark even as churches today. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word is not in us. In other words, I want you to hear this morning, if you miss some sins, because really, what did the thief on the cross say? He said, remember me. He didn't go down the list, friends. He didn't go down his whole list of all the wrongs he had done in his life. This idea, if I miss a couple sins, I'm hell bound, is not right. The Scripture does not teach that. Jesus died and paid the price for sin. And once I acknowledge that sacrifice, I need, I'm made holy not because of what I've done or didn't do, but because of him. In other words, Jesus' death frees us from the penalty of sin once and for all. Jesus' death frees us from that. Our confession of our love for Him only claims that sacrifice of saying, I need that. His resurrection frees us from the power of sin. This is beautiful. So uh, my sin is paid for no matter how far off the edge I've been. It's paid for. I turn and I proclaim Him then it's this word called sanctified, sanctification. As I journey in my life, God, through being under his light, is changing me. And I get, I get freed from the power of sin. It doesn't mean my flesh goes away. Friends, I still lust. I still struggle with greed. I still struggle with pride. I still struggle with all those things as you do too. And yet, I am freed daily as I walk in the light more and more and more. And it doesn't mean I become a perfect Christian. Because isn't it like two steps forward, one back? Some of you that are older Christians that you know, 
gosh, I thought I whooped that 20 years ago. Nope. And we will not be freed from the presence of sin until He returns. This is the beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. And this is what He calls us to. Now, the, the passage I want to just teach this morning very quickly. <laughs> this is it. This is the message. Uh, Psalms 32. Blessed is the one, this is David, whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. There's a fortunate perspective. There's a great uh, feeling about this. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, like no slip or misstep, in whose spirit there is no deceit. But listen to what he says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. In other words, when we don't confess, we keep silent and that guilt and friends, if you are not in a discipline of confessing sin both to God and one another, your heart will get hard. Your mind will get distorted and you will start to justify and start to kind of rationalize your sin. The Bible never... One example. You know how many people live together today to try marriage out. That's an interesting one. You know, let's give it a, let's give it a trial run. It's like the interview process for however long you live together. And let's sleep with one another and break outside of what, how God designed us. And that goes on and on, and it's this justification, and then they wonder why there's a struggle, maybe physically, when they finally do get married, and most don't. Don't make it. It's because you've not been designed that way, and it's a specific guide that God said, not I'm not trying to disappoint you about it, I want you to experience it. Now, if some of you have cross that boundary, it doesn't mean that there's not freedom. God can restore and He does. But when we keep things silent, that heaviness on us and that guilt begins to flesh itself out all throughout our lives. But verse 5, there's the turn. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is just a powerful moment in where David's turning and saying, I gotta let it out. I gotta let it out. This morning, as we go to the cross, friends, I'm gonna challenge you something about communion. If you don't take communion this morning, it doesn't mean you're not forgiven. The death of Christ is the penalty paid for sin. But God called us to say, and Jesus says, do this often, and what? Remember. Why I did that. I paid the penalty of sin, and then I released you from the power of being dictated your life by sin. In order to do that, you must confess. Confess that you want to live underneath His being and confess where you misstep and slip. And so three things you can do this morning. One, name your sin. Call it out loud. I'm lustful. I'm greedy. I'm arrogant. I'm prideful. Make, say it. Say the words and then claim your misstep. Take responsibility for that misstep. Don't justify and reclaim the promise that God says you do not have to be guided by that anymore. 
And friends, you do not need to live in guilt and shame because this is why Jesus died. The scripture says that we don't need to live in guilt and shame. And when we go to the cross, we go to the communion and the cup, the communion, the, uh, the bread and the cup. We find ourselves free. We sang that in the beginning. Free. Free from the bondage of sin. Friend, this morning, you are called to name, claim, and then turn away from that sin. And you're made holy in his eyes. Father, will you teach us what it means to be a church of confessing both your glory, your power, your gift of Jesus, but also confessing our misstep. And Father, moving out of how you've designed us to be, our wrong being, teach us that, Father, and thank you for the blood and the body of your Son that allows us to live set free. In Jesus' name, amen.